So let us pray. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for a chance to meet in this room today. We thank you, Lord, that we indeed can feel your presence among us. We thank you for the strong promise of Scripture that as we draw near to you, that you draw near to us. We thank you, Lord, for this, and we thank you that you change us in your presence, that you encourage us, that you instruct us, that you correct and admonish and teach us, that you inspire us. Lord, we thank you for this precious gift, this gift that is worship, and we offer our worship to you, Lord, as a gift, and we pray that you would receive it as a gift from our hearts to yours. Lord, as we worship, we're grateful for your word that directs our steps, and as we open it together today, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us tender hearts that would receive your truth as a seed planted in fertile soil. God, we pray that you'd give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will, that you would strengthen our hands, that our work in this world would be as your very own. And holy God, we pray that a word of life and hope and witness and encouragement would be found on our lips. This is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus, and we pray together saying, amen and amen. Please be seated, and as you're seated, find a Bible and turn with me to John, 1 John uh, chapter 2. Our focal text today is uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. We began last week a teaching series uh, called Back to the Beginning. Uh, let me remind you, if you were here last week, and let me tell you, if you were not, uh, the context a bit. John is writing to a group of people, Christians, uh, that had suffered some, uh, some people leaving. There were a bunch of folks that had gotten too cool for school, if you will. They, they'd outgrown the gospel. The cool kids were, were going off in another direction, uh, and it was bringing uh, about chaos in the church. And, uh, and, and, and he was taking them back taking back to their core convictions and their, and their core commitments to Jesus the Christ. Uh, and by taking them back, he wasn't taking them back to just some elementary things that you learn and you master. He was taking them back to these very core life issues that, that you only uh, improve in. I mean, you, you never come to the point where you say, well, I've got love, I, I've, I've mastered love, here we go. You never get to the point where you say, well, I finally got a handle on this sin deal. I'm over this one. He's taking them back to those big issues of life that we will have with us until we stand before our God. The big stuff. Because he wanted to remind them that Jesus Christ was life. And he was light. And he was love. And he was our hope. And that's where we began last week. And today we pick up with the big issue of sin. Uh, kids were leaving church one day and they said, uh, what did the pastor talk about today? He said he talked about sin. And one asked, said, well, was he for it or against it? Uh, you may have the same question in your mind. It's not an old-fashioned sermon on sin, but maybe it kind of is in a way because I think to have a, a clear understanding of a doctrine of sin is one of the most hopeful things that we can have because it helps us to see the world clearly. 
And, and John dealt with this issue of sinfulness and what it has done in our lives and how it's affected our relationships and, and what God has done to rectify that, to make it right and to, to transform our lives. And that is so hopeful. That is so gospel. And so today the big issue before us is sin, salvation, sanctification. We begin reading verse 12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The Word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires, they pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Beautiful sentences. John's writing them to remind them that Christ is life and he is hope. There is no reason to run away. There is no, no something better out there. And he, he, he comes to this place and he gives them a clear-eyed, full-throated picture of life as it is in the world that it is with an eye cocked toward the world that will, will, will be. There's several big categories, and as we think about this together today, I want to start with those. And the first is, what is sin anyway? One of my favorite writers is a woman named Fleming Rutledge. She's become uh, something of a, of a phenom in the latter part of her ministry. For many years, she was a parish priest, a preacher of the gospel. And, and now, after retirement, time to write theology. She's writing. I mean, her pen is flying. And she's writing about the cross of Jesus Christ and about the hope that we have in God and about suffering and sin. And people are listening, and I'm so grateful that they are. She said this recently, the Bible speaks of sin in two essential ways. One, as a responsible condition for which atonement must be made. And two, as an enemy that must be driven from the field. Sin is therefore both a guilt and a power. We are culpable and we are captive. Sin is something we do, and it is something that shackles us. It's the answer to the problem of what's gone wrong with the world, and why is there this suffering and pain and shame? What's the matter with us? The what the matter with us is, is, is sin. And we need a clear doctrine of sin to have a, a clear view of the world and our place in it, to have a real understanding of suffering and shame and problems and circumstances and situations. 
to get it, we have to get this. The Bible is very clear in its affirmations on the goodness of God's creation and the brokenness because of our rebellion. We're fortunate that we can hold both of those things in our minds and in our hearts simultaneously. If you pay attention to the world, the world disconnected from the gospel, people gravitate toward one end of that or the other. One is a gravitation toward a naivete that says all is right with the world. We just look at things from different angles. That naivete breaks down in the face of world wars and genocide and going to Walmart. Another group of people gravitate toward a, a really dark pessimism, toward a nihilism. And nothing is right. In the Christian gospel, we have a message of God's abundant creation so we can affirm life because it is a gift from God. And we must recognize this invader, this insidious weed that has erupted in the garden of the Lord. And that invader is sin. Theologian Fisher Humphrey said it like this, This is God's good world, and it's also a fallen world. It is one of the success stories of the Jewish and Christian faith that we have been taught to see both truths about this world. Manager asked, whatever became of sin, we quit talking about it. But I think we would be wise to reclaim it. Reclaim it as a, as a significant category of thought and faith. Because we contend with it day in and day out. And the Bible talks about it as well. And John was very clear, very clear, that we need Jesus and grace and the gospel because we're sinners. We are sinners. Okay, so the second thing for us to consider is who are sin's agents? How, how did this come about? Was God the author of sin? No. Then how did this, this come to be? What are, what are the agents of, who are the agents of sin? Well, the old categories of the world and the flesh and the devil still hold up, and, and we read about that in John. We can talk today, for instance, of the self. James, James said it like this. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. There's not a person in this room that can say with Flip Wilson, the devil or my mama or my cousin or anybody else made me do it. We're sinners because we, wait for it, want to be. We have these broken wanters, these broken desires. We want to be the gods of our own life. And so we create little idols and we put them up everywhere so that we can trick ourselves to think we're not worshiping ourselves. But really, indeed, we are. And those desires, I love the language of James, drag us away. Now, here's time for confession. Have you ever had to be drug out of any place? We got plenty of time if you want to tell the story. From time to time, you see on, on television people being drug out of a room, taken someplace that they really don't want to go. That, that image of being drug is a powerful one. I, I saw this scene this week at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis. They were using that great, that great sanctuary for a graduation ceremony, and a couple of families got in a big old brawl fist fight over saving of seats. Did you see this? 
I grew up in the part of the world where Adrian Rogers was on every radio station, religious or secular. It took him about four syllables to say God. Uh, I, I was just thinking, I'm glad Adrian's dead. He would have had a real hard time with this fight at Bellevue Baptist Church. People being drugged out of the sanctuary. R.G. Lee would have just gone in and said, there's a payday someday and it's today. That's really insider baseball Baptist talk. I'll tell you all about it later. <laughs> but they're drugged and we were drugged and pulled and prodded. And there's something in our life that snatches at our very identity, our very heart. What's the agent of sin? Well, we are. We are. The agent of sin, according to the Scriptures, is also Satan. Uh, I, I love how, how Robert Law said it. He said, he is the aboriginal sinner, and what he became, he still is. To have this as a living category is to say there is something about sinfulness and sinning that is more than just rational. And so we can't say if we just get this right or that right, if we get the environment right or our diet right, then we'll overcome sinfulness and sinning. One of the reasons I think Cormac McCarthy is such a compelling writer is because he illustrates an evil that is deeper than some rational explanation for it, that pushes past the everyday, the everyday kind of concepts of, oh, mistakes, mistakes. We don't sin anymore, we make mistakes. And we all know in our unguarded moments, there's, there's more to it than just messing up here and there. There's something deep that pushes past rational. It's spiritual and rebellion. There's me. There's the adversary. And then there's society as, as a whole. There's this language in here about loving not the world. The Bible speaks of the world in a number of ways, in their important ways. Uh, different words render different things. One of the ways the Bible talks about the world is, is the people of the world. And the people of the world are the focus of God's affection. For God so loved the what? World. That he gave his unique, one-of-a-kind, only-begotten son so that whoever would trust in him, would believe in him, would not perish due to the wages of these sins, but would have everlasting life. Well, that's not what John is talking about here, not the people of the world, but about the systems and the structures and the ways of going about things that we do together that are opposed to the wisdom and the graciousness and the heart and the holiness of God. So you might say, in some ways, that the agents of sin are self and Satan and society. And, and he gives these categories of, of worldliness that I think we all contend with. He said that the ways of the world are these. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, what are these categories? The emphasis on desire, on, on lust. Uh, the lust of the flesh that's being chased, chasing after a sensuality. Uh, just everyday materialism uh, of, of this feelings and the stuff. And some of us, that's where we gravitate. That, that's our weaknesses. That, that's the place where when we're drug away, when we're snatched away, that's the way we go. Some of you say, I got that under control. Uh, I've, I've got that handled. Well, how about the second category, the lust of the eye? That, that's a greed. 
and a desire to, to want to acquire and a covetousness. We have sanctified this one. The economy runs on it. After great tragedies, we're told by our leaders, go shopping. Don't let this thing fall off. You've been praying long enough. Now go shopping. There's a lot of us. This stuff out there, it subtly and sometimes not so subtly pulls us away. And the last category, and this is a slippery one, the pride of life. That's having a self-confidence based on what I have and what I could do. And we nearly deify this. It's confidence and strength. Not long ago, I was reading in the Psalms, Psalm 73, and a confession of someone who was looking at the strong and the successful and the arrogant and thinking about his own life. And he said, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their calloused hearts comes iniquity. From their evil imaginations, they have no limit. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink drink their waters in abundance. They say, how could God knows? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. He said, I almost fell off the mountain because I looked at all the cool kids. I looked at all the big shots. I looked at the guys who had it all together, and I wanted that so bad. This person had no standing to have pride of life, but had a lustful desire for it. He said, I wanted that to be me so bad that I almost forgot God, and I almost went right off of this cliff. And I don't bet there's a man or woman in this room who hadn't been there, who has not been there. The great question is not, why do... Why do bad things happen to good people? But for some people, it's why do good things happen to bad people? It's what you got in your mind. The question is, what do we all do as sinners standing in the face of a holy God? What do we do as people who have sinned? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you'll see that you indeed are an agent of sin like everyone else, then you need to meet the enemy of sin presented in Scripture. And the enemy of sin is the grace of God. John lays it out like this, lays it out for us in, in our need for atonement. Listen to this again from chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. From all sin. Or how about chapter 2, verse 2? He is the toning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Now fast forward with me to chapter 4, verse 10, and hear this from John. This is love. You ever wondered what love was? Here you go. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. In the face of our grasping and our pulling and our being drugged and our, and our, and our dangling over the cliff, God came for us because he loved us. And Jesus lived. We are saved by his life, Scripture says. He died. He died for sins according to Scripture. And he was raised to life again that we could live by faith in him and his mercy. This hope that is presented in Scripture, John said, is the hope that they had from the beginning. And there was no reason to walk away from that because it was life. You read all manner of descriptions of what happened when Jesus gave his life. We call them theories of the atonement, and, and they're beautiful, and they give you rays of light. It's like light shining through a prism. You, you get different rays of what God was doing when Jesus was giving himself for us. But taken together, they all say, they all say sin is dealt with in and through and by Christ. And then he did it because he loved. Listen to this. this. This is from Robert Law. If then we find in every theory alike that the work of Christ is the undoing of the work of sin, that in one theory sin and its undoing are regarded in relation to the moral disposition of man, and another to the personality of God, and another to the public interest of the divine government, and yet another to the inherent constitution of the moral universe, we may conclude that none of these different conceptions will be lacking. Whatever others may be present in the final interpretation of the Apostle's words, herein is love, not that we love God, but that God loves us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Grace is the enemy of our sinfulness, and we see it first in the atonement. We see it in our call to confession. Look, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That great hymn of confession that we read today deals honestly with God. It begins with our culpability and it, and it ends with the restoration of our joy in life because we have returned to the God that cared and loved for us. And it leads to our victory in life. 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. This is our victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. You young men, I write to you because you have overcome the evil one. Yes, yeah, sin is an enemy that is driven from the field by the love and the grace and the power that we see in the cross of Jesus our Lord. You never outgrow this. You're never so sophisticated or mature or cool that you can grow beyond this because this is our hope. And this 
is life. And this, as followers of Jesus, gives us our identity. And this is the heart of this second chapter. John says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins are forgiven. Dear children, that's how he addressed all of those followers of Jesus. Dear children. Some of those dear children were young and new to the faith, and he wanted to shore up their commitments. They had, they had been forgiven, and they'd overcome the evil one, and the word of God was strong in them, but he wanted to shore up their commitments. Some of those dear children were young, and some of them were old. They had been with Christ a long time, many days, many days. And their life had been strengthened by the gospel. They knew their hope, and he wanted to encourage them as well and, and for them to be a source of encouragement to those that were, were young. I, I love the story that Curtis Vaughn tells about a young Charles Spurgeon. Reflecting on this passage of Scripture, he says, The verb translated have known must speak in this context of a long and ever-deepening experience. Charles Spurgeon tells of a time when he was a very young man. He was preaching on the faithfulness of God. His aged grandfather, who was sitting behind the young preacher, came forward at one point and said, My grandson can tell you about this, but I, I can bear witness to it. I've known him. And what he says is true. John was writing to Christians both old and young, those that had learned and were living and could tell, and those that could bear witness of many years of a deepening faith in Christ revealed. Christ the forgiver, Christ the gracious one. In this room, we have little children, children of God. Some of you are old and some of you are young in the faith. But that's your identity children of God you'll never be able to outdo that that's who you are because of the truth that you are a sinner in need of a savior and God in his willingness and his wild grace came to do in your in my life what we couldn't do on our own and when we acknowledge that and receive that gift that only he can give we become his precious children. That's where life is found. That's where life is found. Yeah, sin's a kind of an old-fashioned, dusty term. But I think when you take the newspaper and read it, in your Twitter feed and read it, in your trips to Walmart... And Warren back and read it. It might just hold a key to some deep understanding. And on the other side of that, abundant hope. He is faithful to forgive us our sins. If we would confess them. God, give us the wisdom and the strength to confess our deep need for you 
both as an entry point into life and faith with you as, as an ongoing confession of our place in the universe. Lord, as we sing a song of commitment, may we all commit afresh to seeking you and your kingdom. Forgive us, Lord, where we settle for daily idols that are insignificant in light of your grace. Lord, help us, we pray, through the power of your name. We say together, amen. Friends, please be, please be standing. Please stand. <laughs> oh, Lord, I'm tired. Stand up. We're going to sing. It's a song of commitment. If you've made commitments in the privacy of your heart that you would make today publicly, we invite you to come for God's glory and for your good. David, please lead us.